Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming along and welcome to this platform. Uh, before we go any further, a little bit of um, parish notices just to introduce the people on stage with me. I'm sure you recognise them all. Penelope Wilton, Ashling Loftus, Simon Russell Beale, and Oliver Ford Davis. They are. <clears throat> They are here as the warm-up act or the bits of act in between the main event. All of us on stage are honest people uh, in almost everything. We care about what the audience think of what we do and we're honest about it. We care about what our family think about what we do and we're honest about it. We care about what our peers think about what we do and we're honest about it. What we're dishonest about all the time is whether or not we care about what the critics think of what we do. <laughs> Um, we do care about it, of course we do, and there is one critic who has struck more fear into all of us than all of the rest put together, and that is the great Michael Billington. <clears throat> so, Michael, let's get kicked off. When, uh, when you write a review, whose opinion do you care about? Whose opinion do I care about? My own, I suppose. Um, well, I, mean, I care about my colleagues' opinions, obviously, but if you're a critic, I think that the key thing, and you used the word honest a moment ago, and I think the key thing for any critic is to be honest to his or her reactions, because if you start to fake it or pretend, you know, you're soon in trouble. So the first thing you've got to do is analyse your own reactions and then try and express them as clearly as possible. Having done that, then, of course, I read what other people have to say, because I value my colleagues' opinions very, very highly. That must be quite... So you never read what your colleagues say until you've completed yours? Oh, absolutely not, no. And another thing, <clears throat> we do not, I swear to God, we do not, critics, discuss a play with each other on the night. I, there's a myth that we all sort of gather in the little, you know, look of the <laughs> Littleton or somewhere and decide on a verdict. We absolutely do not because we're much too, uh, if you like, egotistical to do that. You know, we value our own opinions. But we then, what we do is, <clears throat> having written our reviews you know, the morning after or whatever, the following night we will then talk about the play we saw last oh, night and say, you yeah. gave that four stars or something like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but no, no, we're jealous of our own opinions, I would say. And, and when you know how, uh, how important your opinion is, in all sorts of ways, not, it's not just about uh, hard feelings, um, it's often about the financial success of a show, etc. Um, uh, is it difficult to keep a distance, even when you, you presumably have a great fondness for a lot of the people that you're writing about? Well, it is difficult, and I think <coughs> you've touched on a good point there, because obviously there are certain productions that are fireproof. You know, it doesn't matter a damn what I say or anyone else says about a big musical. I mean, the fact that the majority of critics didn't like Les Miserables, I'm told, has never stopped its success. You know, um, The big musicals will sail on regardless. Um, I think in the West End, a lot of shows are reasonably fireproof because they've got star names attached or whatever. I think it's more difficult when you're dealing with, say, a very young company starting out in a very small fringe theatre and you know they're probably not being paid and you know you're invited along to give an opinion and you really don't want to come in with a sort of heavy roller you know, and, and squash what they're doing. So you have sometimes, I think, to be fairly gentle and considerate. You say I strike fear into people. I hope I don't strike fear into people. Um, <laughs> So I think you vary the tone of the review depending on the context in which you're reviewing it. You know, a big multi-million pound musical can withstand a few bows and arrows from the critics, I think. I mm. hope. Yes, I'm sure you're right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote somebody uh, writing about you. Um, 
uh, he said, the thing you most admire about uh, his, as in Michael's, uh, is that his passion for the theatre is undimmed. There must be nights when the last thing he wants to do is sit through yet another play, but if there are, it is never evident. That was written, by the way, by Peter Hall, who built this theatre. Um, are there plays and titles which you used to dread being sent to? Oh, what a good <laughs> question. Um, there are certain genre or types of play for which I always felt hopelessly inadequate. Um, I'm not very good on mime, for example. Um, so the London Mime Festival is not something I would rush to, <laughs> although, I mean, the work was very good. My colleague Lynn Gardner was keen to go, so off she would go. Um, and there's certain, uh, I suppose, certain types of... There are certain plays which you have seen <coughs> so many times it becomes quite difficult to summon up another reaction. Um, it's, it, this is dangerous territory, but I've now semi-retired, so I can start to name them, you know. I mean, seeing another Romeo and Juliet, I was felt was, you know, uh, quite difficult, because years ago I decided arrogantly what I thought was wrong with Romeo and Juliet. I always think there's something wrong with that play, in that the, the characters Shakespeare creates uh, are too vibrant for the plot he's saddled himself with. In other words, Juliet would not wait, you know. Uh, she'd go off with Romeo, or she'd go off in disguise and follow him, or something like that. Well, you can't keep saying that in every review you write of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> so I think there are certain plays that come round with uh, ever greater familiarity, or ever, ever greater frequency, but some plays you never, ever tire of. I've never in my life, I swear, tired of going to an another Hamlet. Really? Every, no, seriously, every single production of Hamlet is different depending on the casting, the, the, the ideas of the director, the, the climate in which it's being staged, even the country in which it's being staged. If you see Hamlet, say, in London or New York, it's a different play from seeing Hamlet in Moscow or you know, some country that has lived through some kind of totalitarian, totalitarian regime. So that's a play that is always changing. The majority of Shakespeare's plays, I would say, are always ever-changing. I mean, there are very few plays I got tired of, but <coughs> one of the reasons I did decide to semi-retire was I thought, well, maybe I have said what I had to say about As You Like It, which wasn't very much in the first place, but, you know, <laughs> um, now someone else should have a go. But uh, the great plays, I would say, are infinitely renewable. You know, you can go back to most of Shakespeare, you can go back to Chekhov, you can go back to Ibsen, and you will always find and discover things you had not noticed before. Uh, I have to ask this. What's the worst show you've ever seen? <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. The worst show... Well, you mean this year or last year? <laughs> um, well, I have to say, I mean, I'm just going back on recent memory. Um, I thought Bitter Wheat by David Mamet last year, I don't know whether anyone saw that play, uh, not many by the sound of it, um, with a very fine actor, of course, John Malkovich. You know, it was the play about Harvey yes, Weinstein's yeah. sexual predatoriness. But I mean, since everyone knew what they thought about the subject before they went in, it was a play that actually told one nothing new or nothing fresh. When I started out in the job in the 1970s, there was a whole rash of very bad musicals. I'd call them tax loss musicals because no one else, no one could have put them on for any other reason. Um, and those sort of haunt me still. There was one called Thomas and the King, which was improbably a musical about Thomas Beckett and Henry II, right. you know. Um, and I remember someone r r rushing on and saying, arrest those monks, you know, I mean, it was full of sort of daft dialogue. I remember a, Tom, a musical version of Tom Brown's School Days, which, as you all know, is set in a very famous English public school. And in the middle of it, they brought on a, a group of f f flamenco dancers. And I kept wondering why flamenco dancers had erupted into the middle of Arnold's rugby. 
you don't see musicals these days quite as awfully yeah. sad, I think. You know, the, the costs are too high now, so people have learnt their lesson. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, know it's, I know it's a recent... Uh, a recent uh, thing, but this star system that's coming, I, I, I'd say one of the sa saddest things that, that as an artist you can face is going down for breakfast in the morning to be told that you've got two stars in The Guardian. There's one thing worse, um, which is one, which I'm not <laughs> sure that I've, I've ever managed. Um, uh, I pretty much had the whole range from you. Um, but uh, uh, but it is a d it's a moment of joy on those rare occasions when you get the full five. And um, I had that experience last year from Michael, and it made me very happy. And uh, it was for Small Island, and we're lucky that we've got Ashling Loftus here who's going to give us an excerpt. This is a few little um, speeches put together of uh, Ashling's character Queenie as she journeys through uh, her life in the uh, 30s and early 40s, and this is Ashling from Small Island. How did I end up here? In this lanky house in Earl's Court, married to a fella I have as much in common with as a creature from another planet. It's not what I imagined for myself. But then again, I don't come from a place where you do much imagining. Growing up, I knew just one thing that I didn't want to spend my whole life on that stinking farm. With my dad butchering the animals in the shed, helping my mother with the meat pies, swilling the blood from my brother's overalls. Made of all drudgery, that was me. My deliverance came in an unlikely form. Once I'd made my escape, I found myself thinking all sorts of possibilities in that department. I knew what went on, of course. You can't grow up on a farm and not know. I'd even been asked out once or twice by some snotty-nosed miners lads who I'd laughed at. But well, I'd been to the pictures too. I'd seen those movie stars with the beautiful powdered faces and glossy curls. I, I knew there was such a thing as romance. Well, what if that could happen to me? What if I could be adored, pursued? Well, I, I could get married, have a home of my own, have babies, oh, babies. When my brothers were very little, I'd, um, it'd be my job to look after them. I can still remember the feeling of their hands and next the softness of their little hands and feet. The first time Bernard came into the shop, I hardly noticed him. He's very polite about it, relations. He, he unties his pyjama bottoms and bunches the fabric into his hands so they don't oh, drop down and spoil the surprise. <laughs> then he, darling, he always starts like that. Then he gets into bed, pulls my nightie up under the covers until he can slip his hands between my legs and part them. Then he rolls on top of me, fumbles about like he's searching for a light switch in the dark <laughs> and sticks it in. A held breath that turns him pink, a grunt, spittle all down my neck and then it's over. 
There's been no babies yet. I even went to the doctors a couple of months back to see if he could help. I take it you were having normal conjugal relations, Mrs. Bly. Do you relax? Do you enjoy it? Well, not so as you'd notice, I said. <laughs> Told me to go back home and try harder. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> <clears throat> Ashling, as you can probably tell, has a pressing engagement in a couple of months' time. Uh, so she's cramming in the work, including the show that she's doing at the Donmar Warehouse at the moment, which she needs to run to now. So thank you very much, Ashley. So in amongst all the uh, uh, many, many tens of thousands of reviews, you've also had a number of publications. Um, and in your... Uh, uh, you have said that your book, State of the Nation, British Theatre since 1945, was fired by your curiosity about the extent to which theatre is influenced by the political temper of the times and about the way it may even have propelled social change. Do you really think that it's the role of theatre to propel social change? Well, it's certainly the uh, function of theatre to reflect the times you know, in which we live, and it palpably does that. I mean, I could go through the decades, I won't, you know, showing how that has happened. I think sometimes, quite often in fact, I think theatre can be ahead of the rest of the public in a way, or can indicate a shift in, in temper. Can I just give a, an example, which I use in the book actually. This goes back to the 1950s, uh, a Terence Rattigan play called Separate Tables, and the second play in that, in, in that duo is about a, a bogus major who's been uh, you know, attacked or convicted of some kind of sexual peccadillo in some provincial uh, town. The point is that the residents of the hotel, who are all very middle class and very respectable, far from drumming him out of the hotel, welcome him, welcome him back into the hotel. Now, this is written in the mid-1950s. It's palpably a metaphor for attitudes to homosexuality at the time. And Rattigan is writing this before the Wolfenden Report, which comes out, I think, in 1957, which helps to change the law and make uh, you know, sex between consenting adults perfectly legal. What I'm saying is that was a good example to me of Rattigan being ahead of the game and even the West End audience being, as it were, ahead of the game or showing which way public opinion was drifting. If a Shaftesbury Avenue audience is ready to stand up and applaud a man you know, who's been guilty of whatever he was, um, that indicated to me something was happening. I mean, one could go on with examples. And I think today, um, I, think, I think the theatre itself, <clears throat> not least the National Theatre, is pointing the way in which the society perhaps need, well, not perhaps, does need to move. That is towards much greater uh, gender equality and much uh, greater racial diversity. Uh, it seems the theatre, and I would just like to make this point, and I don't want to bring a blush to your cheeks, but I've been struck in the last year by coming to the National Theatre four times to see plays either by black writers or on subjects involving you know, race relations. And each time I've been, the audience has been incredibly diverse. This would not have happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it seems to me the National Theatre is showing that we can actually create a whole new audience for theatre if the theatre is prepared to tackle certain subjects. Yes. And Small Island was a very I good example that. of that. I mean, that was a brilliant play, mm, yes. uh, wasn't it? About, about the Windrush mm. generation and the consequences of that. And it was a, 
it was very moving, I thought, to yes. see that being played on the stage of a national theatre yes. to an audience whose families or whose, you know, whose parents understood precisely what mm -hmm. that subject was and about. And they were out in the audience too. Absolutely. Yes. So, I mean, theatre can be, I think, not just a mirror for the times, <coughs> but I think it can be actually indicating which way uh, the society is moving. Hmm. Warming to that theme, um, you also wrote, criticism, to me, is not the last word, simply part of a permanent debate about the nature of the ideal theatre. Can you pinpoint a production, or indeed a venue, excepting the one that you've just talked about, <laughs> which I'm very, very happy. I mean, actually, if you want to keep on talking about <laughs> how it's ideal, that would be great. No, a theatre other than this one, that you consider the closest thing you've seen to an ideal theatre. That's very difficult because, you know, utopia is hard to build, isn't it? You know, utopia is always over there. And I would say there are several theatres in London and in the regions that uh, indicate to me what theatre can do and what should be. I mean, this is certainly one of them and has been historically. Um, I would say theatres on the scale of the Donmar and the Almeida, to me, show the, the, the rich possibilities of intimacy, intimate engagement with an audience. I mean, you've... You, you all know these theatres better than I do, and you've all worked in them, and you must have experienced that. There's a different feel to the uh, experience when you're sitting in one of those theatres, it seems to me. The audience is related to the events much more closely. Um, a theatre which I know Oliver's very fond of, and I'm very fond of, is the Orange Tree in Richmond, which again is a theatre in the round, built on a very small scale, and it seems to me it has done for 40 years, 50 years, an exemplary programme of new plays and old plays. And many regional theatres. I think in the regions you find um, the, the, the mood shifts, or certain theatres at certain times come into strong focus. Glasgow Citizens, for example, yeah. uh, in <coughs> the 1970s and 80s. Uh, the Liverpool Everyman in that famous period when, you know, when, when it had, oh, uh, when it had that, you know, extraordinary range of actors, you know, Pete Postlewaite and Julie Walters yeah. and Bill Nye and Jonathan Price and Tony Sher. That, that was, uh, you know, of its moment. Um, Today, from what I've seen, I mean, I think Sheffield and uh, Northampton are both doing exciting work. So I, it's, I wouldn't point to one specific theatre as the ideal. I would say the ideal is happily uh, spread through a number of different venues. It's quite extraordinary listening to the ease with which you can talk about phases, uh, periods, theatres, not just in the UK, all over the world. I think... Um, in 2007, I don't think, it says it here, so it must be true, you estimated that you had spent 8,000 nights in the theatre. Uh, that must be over 10,000 by now. Mm -hmm. That puts your theatre going at 27 years of spending every night in the theatre. Now, Not if I spent... Sorry. Well, no, but if you crushed it down, okay. it would be 27 oh, 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 years yeah, right, of continuously... Right, right. Yeah. Um, if you were... If you... I how to put this delicately. If it, well, if I were... were uh, were to do that within my marriage, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think it might be quite ch I mean, it's challenging enough uh, 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 as it is, asking somebody to put up with what I have to do. How, how has this, this lifestyle of going out maybe four or five nights a week for all that time been for your family? Well, you should ask my wife, who's in the audience, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I said on another occasion, actually, I said my wife has tolerated my absence for the last 48 years. You now have to tolerate my presence, which may be much more <laughs> yes. difficult, actually. <laughs> but, I mean, there are many compensations. You make it sound, on all these statistics, make it sound arduous. You know, I'm not going down the pits, you know. I'm going out every, most nights to a nice venue, you know, people soliciting my presence. <laughs> That's always very nice. Um, 
And it's usually four or five nights a week and has been, you're quite right, for about 48 years. But the great advantage is you have time at daytime at home. I've had lunch at home, not every day, but you know, for the bulk of my life. That's a pleasant experience. Um, I haven't had to rush off at seven o'clock in the morning like most people do, you know, to catch a bus or a train to go to work. You know, I mean, I've worked hard in the daytime, I've written books in the daytime, uh, I've read books in the daytime, I've done other things in the daytime. But in actual fact, as a critic, you have an extraordinary amount of uh, free time, as well as that, those three hours you have in the evening. So if you want, I mean, that may be one uh, reason why my marriage survived. I was always home for lunch, you know. <laughs> so, sounds positively appealing, actually. <laughs> Is your job still vacant? <laughs> no, it's um, not. It's gone. It's long no, gone. No, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so really, there isn't much in there in the way of betrayal, but I'm going to try and make the, uh, the, uh, the, the link anyway to our next excerpt <laughs> uh, from a play called Betrayal uh, by Harold Pinter. And uh, we're now going to hear from uh, Penelope Wilton and Simon Russell Beale <coughs> with this excerpt. It's Torcello tomorrow, isn't it? What? We're going to Torcello tomorrow, aren't we? Yes, that's right. That'll be lovely. Mm. I can't wait. Book good? Mm, yes. What is it? This new book, This Man Spinks. Oh, that. Jerry was telling me about it. Jerry, was he? He was telling me about it at lunch last week. Really? Does he like it? Oh, Spinks is his boy. He discovered him. Oh. I didn't know that. Unsolicited manuscript. You think it's good, do you? Yes, I do. I'm enjoying it. Yes, Jerry thinks it's good too. You should have lunch with us one day and chat about it. Is that absolutely necessary? It's not as good as all that. You mean it's not good enough for you to have lunch with Jerry and me and chat about it? What the hell are you talking about? I must read it again myself now it's in hard covers. Again? Jerry wanted us to publish it. Oh, really? Well, naturally. Anyway, I turned it down. Why? Oh. Not much more to say on that subject, really, is there? What do you consider the subject to Be be? Betrayal? No, it isn't. Isn't it? What is it, then? I haven't finished it yet. I'll let you know. Well, do let me know. Of course, I could be thinking of the wrong book. <laughs> By the way, I went into American Express yesterday. Oh? Yes. I went to cash some traveller's checks. You get a much better rate there, you see, than you do in the hotel. Oh, do you? Oh, yes. Anyway, there was a letter there for you. They asked me if you were any relation, and I said yes. So they asked me if I wanted to take it. I mean, they gave it to me. But I said, no, no, I would leave it. Did you get it? Yes. I suppose you popped in when you were out shopping yesterday evening. That's right. Oh, well. I'm glad you got it. To be honest, I was amazed that they suggested I take it. It could never happen in England, that these Italians, <laughs> so free and easy. I mean, just because my name is Downs and your name is Downs doesn't mean that we're the Mr. and Mrs. Downs that they, in their laughing Mediterranean way, assume we are. 
We could be, and in fact are vastly more likely to be, total strangers. So, let's say I, whom they laughingly assumed to be your husband, had taken the letter, having declared myself to be your husband, but in truth being a total stranger, and opened it and read it, out of nothing more than idle curiosity, and then thrown it into the canal, you would never have received it, and would have been deprived of your legal right to open your own mail. And all this because of Venetian je m'en foutisme. I have a good mind to write to the Doge of Venice about it. <laughs> That's what stopped me taking it, by the way, and, and bringing it to you, the thought that I could very easily be a total stranger. What they, of course, did not know and had no way of knowing was that I am your husband. Pretty inefficient bunch. Oh, only in a laughing Mediterranean way. It was from Jerry. Yes, I recognised the handwriting. How is he? Okay. Good. And Judith? Fine. What about the kids? I don't think he mentioned them. Oh, they're probably all right then. If they were ill or something, he'd probably have mentioned it. Any other news? No. Are you looking forward to Torcello? How many times have we been to Torcello? Twice. I remember how you loved it the first time I took you there. You fell in love with it. That was about ten years ago, wasn't it? About six months after we were married? Yes. Do you remember? I wonder if you'll like it as much tomorrow. What do you think of Jerry as a letter writer? You're trembling, are you cold? No. He used to write to me at one time long letters about Ford Maddox Ford. <laughs> I used to write to him too, come to think of it. Long letters about um, oh, W.B. Yeats, I suppose. That was the time when we were both editors of poetry magazines. Him at Cambridge, me at Oxford. Did you know that? We were bright young men and close friends. Well, we still are close friends. All that was long before I met you, long before he met you. I've been trying to remember when I introduced him to you. I simply can't remember. I take it I did introduce him to you. Yes, but, but when? Can you remember? No. You can't? No. <coughs> How odd. He wasn't best man at our wedding, was he? You know he was. Ah, yes, yes. Well, that's probably when I introduced him to you. Was there any message for me in his letter? I mean, in the line of business to do with the world of publishing? Has he discovered any new and original talent? He's quite talented at uncovering talent, old Jerry. No message. No message. Not even his love. We're lovers. Ah, yes. I thought it might be something like that. Something along those lines. When? What? 
When did you think? Yesterday, only yesterday. When I saw his handwriting on the letter. Before yesterday, I was quite ignorant. Ah. I'm sorry. Sorry? Where does it take place? Must be a bit awkward. I mean, we've got two kids, he's got two kids, not to mention a wife. We have a flat. Ah, I see. Nice. A flat, it's uh, quite well established then, your um, affair. Yes. How long? Sometime. Uh, yes, yes, but how long exactly? Five years. Five years? Ned is one year old. Did you hear what I said? Yes, he's your son. Jerry was in America for two months. Did, did he write to you from America? Of course, and I wrote to him. Did you tell him that Ned had been conceived? Not by letter. But when you did tell him, was he happy to know I was to be a father? I've always liked Jerry. <laughs> to be honest, I've always liked him rather more than I've liked you. <laughs> Maybe I should have had an affair with him myself. <laughs> Tell me, are you looking forward to our trip to Torcello? Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to embarrass you now. Reviewing Betrayal on its first <laughs> night <laughs> in 1978 at this very theatre, Michael said, What distresses me is the pitifully thin strip of human experience it explores and its obsession with the tiny ripples on the stagnant pond of bourgeois affluent life. <laughs> then, in 2007, <laughs> reviewing the Ian Rickson production, Michael says, having rubbished Harold Pinter's betrayal on its appearance in 1978, I seem to have spent much of my life discovering its complexities. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the biggest mistake you think you've ever made as a <laughs> <laughs> I think that comes pretty high on the list, actually. It's very funny because I, every subsequent revival, I have actually begun with this ap ap apology, you know, to the point where Antonia Fraser, Harold's widow, said, for God's sake, Michael, stop apologising. <laughs> we know you got it wrong. Um, but, I mean, I think that's just a very healthy indication of how criti critical judgment is always subjective, fallible, erratic. It's not wholly writ. Um, and it's subject to revision. And I can go through lots of examples of plays which I've, I've, got, uh, I've got wrong. Can I just tell you a quick story about this, though? I mean, there's another famous example where the critics, all the critics got it totally wrong, and that was Sarah Kane's first play, Blasted. And some years after the play, uh, I was in, in Italy doing a British Council panel, and um, James MacDonald, you know, who directed it, was on the panel. And I did my usual ritual thing about, oh, you know, Blasted, I misunderstood what it was about, etc. I didn't understand she was a serious artist. And afterwards, over dinner, James MacDonald said something very interesting. He said, Michael, please stop flagellating yourself. He said, I directed the play and I got it wrong. 
And I thought that was a very interesting admission from a director, too, that you know, we all get it wrong sometimes, do we not? You know, artists, critics, everyone. And that's why the theatre is so constantly interesting, you know. We yes. all make these mistakes. I mean, but it's embarrassing if you're a critic, you know, to have that read out again. You know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll live with it. But I was wrong, and it is a masterpiece, and I understand the play far better now, I hope, than I did then. I think it's, I think it's absolutely fantastic that, you, that you're b uh, big enough to recognise uh, the fact it's, uh, well, I mean, no, no it's not, it, well, I don't think it's, I don't think, no, I'm not being humble, but I just think, you know, when you see a play a second or third or fourth time, you know, you see the things in it that you missed the first time. Um, and I suppose it helped that I got to know Harold well, you know, I wrote a book about him and I began to study the plays in great detail. And the more you study that play, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> the, the more it reveals, does it not? It's not just about sexual betrayal, as I thought when I wrote that review. It's about betrayal of uh, yourself, your marriage, your talent. I mean, it's interesting, that scene, that references to Yeats and Ford Maddox Ford, you know, that they once these two men once had some literary aspiration, which you feel they've now uh, tarnished in some way, and they know it. So they have betrayed their own original ideals, it seems to me. So you know, it's a rich play with multiple yeah. levels of betrayal. <coughs> if it makes you feel any better, I think I've got every play that I've worked on wrong for at least the first three weeks of rehearsal. <laughs> really? I think, yes, I think it takes, you know, with good writing, it you, you, you think, oh, I know what that is, and then you spend time with the writer and, and, and time with the work, and, and yeah, it reveals itself in layers. Somebody's usually put years of work into something that you know, I'm coming to in, in a short period of time. And that must be, that must well, be even more difficult for but you. That's the problem with, the, with being a critic, because particularly with new work, you know, you had no time, you haven't read the play. You go to the play and uh, you have to judge it on that first acquaintance without detailed study of it. And my theory is that nearly all the great uh, sort of works in post-war British theatre get attacked the first time round, quite simply because they're too rich or complicated for critics to absorb them. I mean, if you imagine being a, a theatre critic on the first night of Waking for Godot in 1955, yeah. never having heard of Samuel Beckett, you rush back after the theatre in one hour, you have to sum up what this man is doing. I mean, that's why the play was misunderstood. And there's a long litany. I mean, Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party was absolutely rubbish totally when it first appeared. Uh, John Arden's first plays were, you know, Sarah Kane, as I say, we all got that collectively wrong. So I think the more the artist is uh, experimenting or doing something new or breaking new ground, the less likely they are to be understood on the first acquaintance. Yep. Um, going back a little way, mm -hmm. <coughs> you directed a production yourself. At university, Eugene Ionesco's The Bald Prima Donna it was a performance attended by Harold Hobson, then critic for the Sunday Times, I think. Um, uh, and reportedly, the production, despite having gone down well in Oxford, was not well received at the National Student Drama Festival. How did that experience of being reviewed propel you into a pers uh, pursuing a career as a critic? <laughs> well, I think it confirmed what I knew, that I wasn't a director. I mean, we had done a very good college production of this play, and then it yeah, went to the festival, and Harold... I always meant this Harold Hobson stood up and had to judge all the entrants and said, this is a production that seemed to have had vitality once but has long lost it. And I, he, was, he was right. I mean, that was the whole point. Because, and I know why, uh, we thought we could just, uh, you know, reheat the production, you know, bung it on for the festival without having any rehearsal. And in fact, you know, we, we, it needed time and work. Um, so Harold Hobson's verdict confirmed what I, I think I'd guessed at the time. You know, I wasn't an actor, I wasn't a director but I did want to be a critic. 
Um, and watching Harold Hobson make <laughs> these judgments confirmed that I wanted to be a critic, I think. Uh, you know, I think I knew when I was a student that that was probably my metier. Could I just throw in one little fact, I mean, which Oliver will confirm? He and I both acted in the same productions at, at Oxford. Uh, Bartholomew Fair, right? <laughs> yes. Coriolanus? Yes. And you were an actor and I wasn't. I mean, I could see that, you know, <laughs> e even then, you know. Some yes. people you know have the talent and others don't. The, the two comic villains in uh, Bartholomew Fair were myself and Ken Loach. <laughs> Ken Loach, very good comic actor, which he has kept very, very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he co-directed it, did you? And he co-directed it, yes. So, yes. But yeah. um, they were happy days, but I mean, I, I was just playing a very small part. Oliver was playing... Was it Captain Knockham or something like that? One of the Knockham and Wit. Knockham and Wit. Thank yes. you. One of the big parts and was naturally talented. Um, I t if you, it's sort of an perhaps an impossible question to answer. I could describe roughly what I do for a job. Um, I could break that down. Is it possible for you to simply break down for us how you approach writing a review? Do you have a system or do you have a, a, a set number of questions? Or how do you go about it? Well, it's, it's difficult, but I'll try. I mean, these days, uh, I was writing, in my last 25 years, <laughs> I was writing the morning after. In other words, filing copy by 9.30 a.m. Uh, the morning after the first night. That meant getting up, being at my desk at 7.30 a.m. You know, you needed two hours clear, I think, to write. Uh, and that meant getting up earlier and earlier, actually. I was getting up at 6.30 in order to be ready for 7.30, which is one reason why I decided it was time to retire. But I did begin to have a system and my system was to work out what I thought in some detail and structure the review in some detail before I actually started putting pen to laptop. Uh, and I've become more and more convinced that actually about this, that the key to most things in life, uh, writing, acting, anything, composing, is structure. And if you can structure your review in a reasonably shapely, orderly way, then the words should follow with luck, r logically and naturally. In the old days, when I was much younger, I used to just sit at the typewriter and, you know, improvise and hope it would all work out and structure it as I went along. With the years, I decided you had to get the scaffolding erected first and then you could write the review. But I should quickly say, I mean, there's no formula, there's no method because it varies from one event to another. If you're reviewing, say, let's say a new play is opened at the National Theatre, then the readers want to know your response to the text or the writing, fundamentally. If you're going to see another King Lear, yep. then what <coughs> the readers want to know is, you know, how is King Lear played and how is it being directed? What is different from last time? The other thing I'd say about reviews, my mission was to put things in context. Uh, the one advantage of being an elderly reviewer was that I was able, you know, to relate one thing to another. And, you know, not treat every event as if it was a one-off, but try and relate one play, or try and relate a new play to the um, previous work by the same author, or whatever. So I think it's structure and context were the two sort of guidelines when I was trying to write. Hmm. Um, in your book, The 101 Greatest Plays, mm -hmm. you say that you found yourself, I quote, instinctively drawn to plots which display moral ambivalence. Our next extract, ladies and gents, certainly fits that description. In your original 1990 review of this production's opening night in the then Cottesloe, this is one that I think you've got spot on, uh, you described it as robustly argumentative, pursuing the battle between individual morality and institutional decay. 
So uh, this is um, Oliver Ford Davis and Simon Russell Beale giving us an excerpt from uh, Racing Demon by David Hare. Do you know how many parishioners come to a bishop and say, our parish priest is useless, there's no inspiration, the congregation despair of him, what can you do? And I have to say nothing. You're stuck with him. That's the rule of the Church of England. There's absolutely nothing that I can do. Has, has there been a delegation? In my view, you're bad at your job because people can't get hold of you. I see. They have no idea what you believe. Your answer to everything is to say, well, it's complex. It is complex. Any specific question they ask you, like, do you believe Christ descended into heaven? Oh, well, it depends what you mean. <laughs> and all at once you've lost them because you don't say, yes, I believe in the following things, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the 39 articles, etc., whatever, the Athanasian creed. I asked you to my house, do you remember? Uh, yes. We gave you an excellent lunch. That's right. And you said you no longer believed in the importance of the sacraments. Did, did I say that? Those words exactly. And I gave you a warning. You took no heed. From that day on, you were dead. Dead? Yes, it's cruel. I do understand that. I'm not unfeeling, but I also have a charge. I'm duty-bound to decide where the line must be drawn. No two people will ever agree on theology. It's not possible. You can't make decrees about the meaning of Holy Scripture. But you can insist that whatever our beliefs, we assemble together and perform the same rituals. I agree, as long as those rituals aren't an organized hypocrisy. Yes, I know you think that. <laughs> what else can we do, truly? People are different, it's a fact. They hold different views. We cannot comprehend God. If we could, we would not be here. When we understand him, we shall be in heaven. So meanwhile, we must rely on formulae which have served men well for 2,000 years. No, more than rely on them. I began lately to realize that we must fight for them as well. It isn't my fault I'm being pushed. Oh yes, the church's reformers are always great advocates of passion and what you call it, commitment. But always in their own cause. They don't like it when we become passionate back. I see. Yes. Well, what, and, 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 uh, am I the sacrifice? Yes, is that right? To what end? To encourage the others? Do, do you have a replacement? I'm sorry? A, a, a new team rector. Do you have someone lined up? I do. Who? You wouldn't know him. He's an excellent chap. I was at school with his father. Oh, well, he's <laughs> open and shut. He's a natural leader. The gospel is in him. He looks outside himself. There's no cleft in his brow. And have you fixed it already? I didn't hear you. Have you told him he has the job? You did it, you know. You can't pretend otherwise. You bring it on yourselves, all of you, modernists. You make all these changes, you force all these issues, the remarriage of clergy, the recognition of homosexual love, new Bibles, new services. You alter the form, you dismantle the beliefs, you endlessly reinterpret and undermine. You witter on till you become all things to all men. And you drain religion of religion, and then you're so bound up in your own self-righteousness, you affect astonishment when some of us suddenly say no. 
Well, we're saying no. You've politicized everything. Your wretched synod means exactly that. The church has been turned into a ghastly parody of government. And now suddenly you look around and decide that you don't like the result. You know, they, look, this isn't fair. These things have nothing to do with me. I'm not even active. I'm just one more parish priest. Well, it's true, Charlie, really. Who, for some reason, has become an obsession in your head. You're not an obsession. No, 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 really, it's so. This is what, it, this is what interests me. See it my way round. It's been jolly hard. Why me? Am I really worse than all the others? Is it arbitrary? I've heard you say you want the church to be efficient, like any other business, you say. But a business tries to give you the grounds for a dismissal. They owe you that. It's good manners. Only the church makes such a dirty wound. In part, you see, I think it's just a generalized impatience. I can hardly blame you. The Christian virtue is forbearance. <laughs> It'd be crazy to think it didn't take its toll. <laughs> yes, after a day, after a year, after 50 years, what do you have to show for turning the other cheek? What, what, what happens while you do it? What's the, the price? An accumulation of massive bad temper. <laughs> yeah, it's only, it's only human after all. Maybe you get to thinking, if I can't do this, then what can I do? Is that how you see me? You, you, you think, what's the point of being a bishop, being in authority, if occasionally I can't use my authority to whatever purpose? Your finger gets itchy, I sympathize, but it's a temptation we must resist. We? Why, of course. It's the same for me. What do you mean? Well, I thought it was obvious. <laughs> I can go to the law. What? Yes, the Bishop of Kingston gave me a promise. Yes, I've heard that. That's hardly my fault. I'm, am I to suffer because of my suffragans' foolishness? Was it foolish? You should have come to me. I knew nothing of this promise. No, no, I, I'm, I'm sure, but someone, a friend of mine, has been to see a, a lawyer. He advised the promise has legal status. I, I'm afraid you have no argument in court. Would you do this to me? <laughs> and there is a trade union. <laughs> a what? A trade union, Charlie. Remember the clerical workers? They've just started a clergy section. That is palpably ridiculous. They, they want a test case to prove wrongful dismissal. Do you have any idea what that means? <clears throat> Hearings, tribunals, appeals? Do you want to turn your whole life into a battlefield? Yeah, yeah, both. Both our lives, Charlie. Don't forget that. You see, why, I, why, all that I'm telling you, I can see it's not easy for you to accept it. This, at this point, we are both subject to temptation, equally. You in your mitre, Charlie, me as I am. All right. Very well. You want to know my reason? Why I chose you? because you alone would dare to tell me I can do nothing about incompetence. Am I to be blackmailed because I'm too frightened to fight? In any other job, you'd have been fired years ago. You're a joke, Lionel. You stand in the centre of the parish like some great, fat, wobbly girl's blouse, crying for humanity and doing absolutely nothing at all. 
Yes, I chose you because you, you are the reason the whole church is dying. Immobile, racked, turned inward, caught in a cycle of decline. Your personal integrity is your only concern. Incapable of reaching out, a great vacillating pea green half set jelly. <laughs> you told me the issue was theological. <laughs> It does, it does make me realise that you, you and I, we're the same really, Michael. We've just spent all of our lives watching brilliant people yes. do that. Yeah. Well, I envy you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can watch them day in, day out in the rehearsal room. That I do envy, actually. Uh, I, that, unfortunately, is all we have time for. We could go on uh, all night. Um, we don't get the chance to review... Uh, critics in the same way that critics have the chance to review us but uh, you get five stars from me Michael Billington oh, thank um, you. and uh, it's been a very very great uh, pleasure to have you with us here this evening please let's thank hear you, it for Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was very nice of you. Thank you. And thank the actors too. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you Simon. Yeah, Bless you. Very kind of you.